welcome to the DTV podcast for September 2021, volume 59, number nine. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTV's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we talk about the content for September's DTB and we're currently recording this on the 10th of August. Before we get to the detail of the, of the issue, I just wanted to highlight and get your view, James, on NICE's guideline on shared decision-making. Uh, this was published in June. Uh, it came out as a, as a national guideline. Uh, I have some reservations about a subject like this being managed as a, as a guideline. I sometimes think that guidelines kind of suck the life and interest out of some subjects. I mean, this is clearly an important topic, uh, but does it lend itself to a, to a national guideline? Uh, James, I, I, discuss. Yes, I, yes, discuss. I. The simple answer is, did I get anything out of it? Did I sort of have anything I took away the next day? And no. <laughs> you know, I, it's, it's a good framework and I think uh, it raises a lot of issues and it is an important subject. So I don't want to diss this because this is really important and I think patients increasingly deserve to really understand what's going on with their medicines and the days when people just blindly took them uh, are, are fast disappearing. So this is important, but uh, really complex. How do you tell a patient the pros and cons of of a treatment when that can be so nebulous? Really hard. I think, you know, for those who, who haven't had a chance to read it yet, it's, it's worth just saying that the guideline covers sort of four main areas. One is making shared decision-making a priority across an organisation. The second is putting it into practice across an organisation. The third element is using patient decision aids as part of the consultation. And the fourth is how you discuss risks, benefits and consequences of treatment as part of the consultation. And you can't argue with any of those as, as issues. And, and, and as you say, this is an important topic and it's vital that, that we help um, patients as part of the consultation process understand the risks and benefits of their medicines. But as you say, how do you do it? This is it. And I think just you know starting someone on lifelong treatment for hypertension that's going to require us to bring them back and spend 30 minutes going through it it's not just the sort of nuts and bolts of well here's the Cochrane review article that gives us an idea of numbers needed to treat it's actually well how does that relate to this particular patient you know what's their Q risk how does that impact on all this so it's it actually is a bespoke suit that you're trying to stitch together here and it's very complex. And we know from Julian Treadwell's work um, in the BJGP that GPs find these sorts of figures actually very difficult to hold in their heads. So we do need that third element. Or was it the fourth element you mentioned? You know, the, the, the tools to allow us the sort of tables or nice diagrams that clarify to patients exactly what it means if they're started on any sort of treatment. And that's about having them updated and to hand at every consultation that, that that you have and unless I'm missing something I'm not aware that there's a comprehensive portfolio of all outcomes neatly summarized in terms of benefits and harms not what I'm aware of I mean there was a used to be a website numbers needed to treat but actually you know this is this this is difficult stuff um, because sometimes we're not even we don't even have the, the studies to sort of show that 
simplistic stuff. So it it's right. It's the important thing, and it's a it's a direction of travel that no doubt we will continue to move along. But I think there's something about putting the space in a clinician's day for allow them to do this work. It's about giving them the tools to do it. And those tools will, tools will have to be dynamic. They'll have to be integrated into our IT systems. And it'll be our IT systems that will be giving us the patient's risks based on all their information it holds. So it's a, it's an area where I think that should be the focus of everyone's attention. This shouldn't be another guideline to rather beat the backs of clinicians who are already feeling like they've got enough to do. And, and for me, what was valuable when I looked at the guideline was some of the learning resources that, that, that go with it. But, you know, plus the fact that maybe I've just proved myself wrong, that by having it as a national guideline, hey, well, we're talking about it. So, so it may, maybe, maybe nice as outthought us and it's, in it's, in it's done its job. And the very fact that it's endorsed it may well raise its profile and lead on to the tool, sort of tools that you're, you're calling out for. I think that's that's the point, isn't it? Absolutely right. Get the guideline, get people talking about it and start that that produces the momentum that this requires. OK, thank you very much. Uh, so for this issue of DTP, we'll talk about the editorial, uh, look at a forum article on antibiotic course length in primary care and a review article that discusses the dental implications of using some medicines. Yes. So in fact, in June 2021, the FDA, the US Food and Drug Administration, announced that it approved aducanumab, a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. And David, you've written an editorial this month entitled Aducanumab for Alzheimer's Disease, Too Many Unanswered Questions. So what, what, is, um, what are the questions that are unanswered? Well, yes, interestingly, this, this was more of a controversial issue than I think people expected when they first saw the announcement and it's turned out to have quite a quite a history to it. So let me just quickly go back over the history of aducanumab, uh, a drug that was being tried for Alzheimer's disease, but clinical trials weren't looking that good. Uh, two phase three trials, uh, but disappointing results in people with Alzheimer's disease. In one trial that was stopped early, there were safety concerns and it was stopped early because of safety concerns. They analysed some additional data, which then suggested there might be some positive effect of the drug. But when it came before the expert panel that advised the FDA, in each FDA decision, they present the information and data to an expert advisory panel. And this panel overwhelmingly voted against approving the drug because although they thought there might be some effect on a surrogate marker, and this is the key point we come back to in the editorial, so there was a surrogate marker of um, protein in the brain, amyloid plaques, and it seemed to do something to alter the, the level of amyloid plaques in the brain, but there was no effect on cognitive improvement, so nothing that a patient would see as an improvement, just something about uh, looking, at, looking at their brains. But the FDA overruled the committee and then went on to approve it, as you said, and used its accelerated approval process to grant a, a license. And then that resulted in three members of the expert panel since resigning and one of them saying this is the worst decision you know, the FDA ever, ever made. So for us, it, it, in this editorial, just explored the you know, particular concern around the use of surrogate markers in the licensing process. Uh, and particularly with the controversy over the evidence linking that marker to a clinical outcome, because although you might show an effect on 
brain proteins, is there any evidence that changing that marker makes any difference to cognitive improvement? And it seems quite controversial at the moment that that link isn't, isn't there. So it was really just to explore some of these issues and, and try and understand why it had become such an issue for the FDA. Indeed, and, and this, the accelerated approval process has been around a while now, I think since 1992. And I think my understanding of it was that it was at a time when I think HIV research was ongoing and there was a feeling that actually the FDA wasn't keeping up with research. But it does seem to have come you know, under a lot of criticism recently um, with regard to the number of drugs that subsequently then either don't get approval following this process or the, where the, the phase four trials that are meant to start actually with this process to look at post-marketing surveillance never actually happen. And I think, uh, well, just to say, I think on that, on that issue, that the advisory committee were not aware that the FDA was going to use this accelerated approval process. And it, it seemed to be a later decision by the FDA to, to use this route to, to grant approval for the, for the drug. So there's something about the process it used. And then there's a, a consequence of that, that the once you've got this um, accelerated approval process, you're then committed by the FDA to do further research to prove that the drug has a benefit. And the trials the FDA now want won't report until 2030. So patients are in this particular difficult situation where they could be exposed to potential adverse effects from the drug. And this drug does have some adverse effects, including serious brain injury. And they won't know if there's a clinically beneficial effect until 2030. So it's a bit of a leap of faith asking patients to to, to take on a drug in a clinical trial that may or may not have a benefit and may have harms. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it's, it's a really tricky one. Uh, and, I, and of course, we know from previous studies that the number of those trials actually happen, you know, only around about a half, only about a half of these accelerated um, drugs actually does that phase four trial ever happen. And of course, as you say, it doesn't have to be submitted till 2030 well that's almost 10 years away which is the average life expectancy of any drug so it's it's a difficult one and as you say the risk is that clinicians and patients will um, feel they're doing some good by using this drug perhaps it may actually end up not being beneficial it may well have adverse effects there may be an awful lot of money spent unnecessarily on this and you know that's that's a very difficult area but it is a, it is an interesting case of of where do we go when you there's obviously a huge demand to try and find a treatment for dementia uh, and the concept of it being such a long disease that can you really ever get a trial that will look at clinical events or mortality you know surrogate outcomes do seem to be the way to go but as you say this surrogate outcome seems to have absolutely no connection to any clinical outcome and I think if you if you go back to our previous discussion on the editorial, if you are doing your shared decision making discussion with a, with a with a patient and trying to explain how this drug might benefit them, you're actually going to struggle to come up with other than it may have some effect on the protein in your brain. We don't know what that means in terms of your cognitive function. And how do you how do you pitch that and discuss that in a way that's meaningful um, and allows them to make a make an informed decision? Yeah, it, it is 
But what you're basically doing is asking every patient to be part of a trial, and yet they won't be part of a trial because the drug's already got a license. So unless they actually are put into the phase four trial, then then you know their outcomes won't sort of play any part in the understanding of this uh, drug. Now, I don't think at the moment the MHRA is thinking about, or I don't think it's on their been formally submitted to them yet or not that I could see when I was having a quick look earlier uh, but clearly some lessons to learn from the American experience um, and I think it's important that we just set out some of these arguments so that when when it does become an issue for the for the UK we, we know what we're looking at. It is it and, I, and just one last thing of course you know we always this what happens of course is that we then stop thinking about the lifestyle issues and actually you know this drug versus the lifestyle issues, which we know there are lifestyle changes, hypertension management, cholesterol, lots of different things we can do to reduce your risk of getting vascular dementia. So there's lots of things that we should be doing. And the risk is that we just focus on spending thousands and thousands of pounds on an injection when we should be actually far working far harder to support these people at an earlier stage with things other than drugs. Absolutely. Let's turn to uh, the forum article we've got um, in this, this month's issue. Uh, what's this one about? So this is um, Mike Wilcock, who's one of our board members, together with Alistair Hay, who's written um, an article on antibiotic prescribing in primary care, focusing particularly on whether we can do better at getting shorter courses. He talks about the fact that actually about 1.3 million days of extra time, extra duration um, of treatment occurs every year if you compare what doctors actually prescribe for their antibiotic courses against what the recommendations in the guidelines suggest. Now, that begs a big question about the robustness of the evidence for the course length in, in the guide, guidelines. And what do we know about that? Well, this is the issue, isn't it? Actually, there's very limited evidence for duration of therapy, um, both in the nice guidance, but also the you know the information behind that, the evidence behind that, um, and it's most of the course lengths we talk about are just arbitrary. They just come out of convention, and so so you know we are sort of walking on quicksand here a little bit. But I think that I mean, and for me, I think although, and in fact, Mike does just come back to this in the course of this uh, paper. For me, actually, the first thing to do is not prescribe any antibiotics at all if you can help it. I started my general practice uh, a long time ago and read an article by Van Buchen that was published in the BMJ in the 1980s where they'd compared no antibiotics with antibiotics in the management of otitis media. And this was the first study that showed that there was actually very little difference in outcome. And I remember having read this article, I then went on and didn't treat any of my patients with otitis media with antibiotics. And my trainer was absolutely horrified. But we went back through all the records and none of them had come to any harm and they'd all got better. So I think, you know, there's an element here of saying that, first of all, you know, why prescribe at all if you don't have to? But then it should be, OK, if you are going to prescribe, then what's the minimum you need to prescribe to make this work for this patient? And of course, it's very easy, isn't it, to look at the secondary care approach where you might start something for a couple of days and then then review it because you've got the uh, capacity, the tests and, and everything else at, at hand to allow you to, to, to assess a patient. But clearly that, that's not what you can do in primary care. Yes, I mean, that's right. So secondary care have got this new start, smart and focus. And that was 
very much needed because there were times in the past where you'd add an antibiotic to someone's uh, drug chart and two weeks later you'd find it was still being given merrily each day because no one had crossed it off. So this this was a really useful uh, approach to, to prevent that happening. And it does mean that now antibiotic management is reviewed uh, very soon after it started to see if it's required. I, I took slightly to that because actually you're absolutely right. In primary care, we don't have a checkup on patients a couple of days later. But what we can do is is a you know a woman who comes to see us with her fifth UTI who tells us actually every time you give me three days of antibiotics, doctor, it doesn't clear it, I need longer. Well, there may be an element of us being able to therefore personalise that management for that patient. And, and he does talk about the concept of personalising treatment. So I think we can do it, but not in quite the same way as, as secondary care. But I think that the, the, the real thrust of this is actually, you know, we, we have done really well. Let's not be hard on primary care. Antibiotic um, prescribing has been reduced by 14% since 2015 in primary care. So we've already seen a reduction, but this is about let's, let's tighten the, the screw even harder. Let's really try and manage a lot of our patients now. Because I think, you know, particularly with the childhood vaccination programme, we don't see as much childhood illness as we used to. And a lot of it is quite mild and can be managed with just symptomatic management. So it's about saying, look, hold off or use deferred antibiotic prescribing as a first line. You know, make sure you've got good safety netting and the chances are these patients will be fine and you will have done the system a service because you'll have given our antibiotics a longer life. And as Mike points out, there's also a need for some more research into ideal course lengths for um, primary care use of antibiotics. And I think the one of the organisations has called for um, further re- further research and, and expressions of interest to do more research in this topic. Yeah, the National Institute for Health Research is, you know, really looking at trying to improve the evidence behind this. And I think it is really useful. And, and I think, you know, there's so much opportunity now with this is one of the areas where the mood to using primary care data you know we've we've got all the data there's a slight issue slight issue because sometimes a gp might say one thing to a patient but prescribe something slightly differently so there might be times when you might prescribe more than three days of an antibiotic to a patient but have told them to take them for three days so that you know that it's sometimes the data doesn't match what's going on but uh we have got plenty of data we could be looking at to, to really get get this straight in our minds I'm sure and of course sometimes there's a mismatch isn't there with with what's licensed with with what the uh, you know the approach might be so an antibiotic may not be licensed for only yeah. three days uh, that, that was quite a shock for me nitrofurantoin you know isn't licensed for three days so in theory we should need to be telling our patients this is an off-label um, prescription and the, you know the, the drug company actually suggests you should have seven days but my guidelines are telling me it's three days is plenty long enough. So there is that slight mismatch there, which is just one of those quirks of, of fate. But it just, just demonstrates how complex it, this all is, isn't it? It just demonstrates, you know, how do I explain to a patient the, the risk benefit of three days versus seven days for the patient, given that the three days may actually reduce the chance of that patient recovering but actually it might save the world later on from antibiotic resistance. 
And that neatly takes us back to where we started, which is how do you describe risks and benefits in shared decision making when actually you don't know the full story of the consequence of one um, decision, what its impact is, as you say, on global antimicrobial resistance. So yes, a, a really difficult one. Okay, thank you for that. Um, let's just finish off with our main article. This month, we're looking at some commonly prescribed medicines and their impact or the impact of dental health and dental care on, on medicines. Uh, tell us a bit about this one. Yeah, so this, is, it's been, this has been quite hard work to, to make this article work for us. And I think it now works really well. And I was counting up the, the number of different drugs that we actually talk about in this article. And I suspect it's probably got the highest number of drugs uh, named in it than any other article we've ever published. But this is looking at the dental implications of some of the commonly prescribed medicines. So it looks at everything from things like gingival hyperplasia that you can see in patients who are given calcium uh, antagonists to obviously an area that's really important, anticoagulants, um, antiplatelet drugs and dental procedures and really just covers each of these areas in, in a nice pre-seed way. And I think it's really important for for dentists. This is the sort of thing they could have in their top drawer. But it's also really useful for GPs. I think you know, it's worth reminding ourselves that almost half of uh, over 65-year-olds now are taking more than five medicines a day. And obviously, if they go to the dentist, you know, it's likely that one of those medications may have an impact on the dental care that patient wants. And unlike primary care, um, general dental services don't have access to the patient's detailed record, as far as I understand? No, not, not at the moment. I mean, I wonder whether they might have access to the spine in future. Um, but you're right. And I think, you know, there's some issues for us as well. Obviously, you know, the bisphosphonates and denusumab around medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw, it's really important that we recognise that we should be advising patients who've got perhaps uh, poor dental hygiene or have got a tooth that's perhaps giving them some trouble, that needs to be looked at first. Um, some really inf good information in this article about when should someone have dental care if they're on denusumab injections, um, timing that so that it has the least impact on them. And of course, you know, DOAX and warfarin, how do you manage patients who are having things like teeth removed, another major surgery in their mouth? Um, how do you manage that? So really, really useful article. One of those ones where there's lots on in there that, that are, it's, it's important stuff that sometimes perhaps we forget. Thank you very much. That's um, one we will, we will promote to our dental colleagues. Um, you can find uh, these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. Uh, please let us know what you think of our podcast. We would love to have your comments, negative or positive. You can leave us a rating or a comment on the iTunes site, and there's a link to the DTB iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Alternatively, you can email us directly at dtb.bmj.com. And we're happy to receive suggestions for other topics that you think we should cover. So many thanks for listening to us. And we hope you'll be able to join us for October's podcast. Bye.